Welcome to the Geriatric Journal Club, featuring practical discussions on the front line of PALTC issues that you wrestle with every day. References for this podcast and links to previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club. Statements made by guests on this podcast are their own opinions and are not necessarily the position of the society. Speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. Have you joined AMDA's new initiative called Drive to Deprescribe, Optimizing Medication Use in PALTC? Learn more at paltc.org slash drive, the number two, deprescribe. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. Good afternoon and um, welcome to one of our special editions, um, COVID-19 Call to Action. I think I made a promise to everyone who um, usually joins our sessions and um, those who listen to us via um, um, the podcast that if things ever started to get really hot again, <laughs> Um, we will we will try to pull everyone together and just make sure we're giving everybody some updates. And there have been so many updates to um, give. Um, so I'm thinking like in how to sort of share this information. I want to go through some of the state of state um, information and the trends that we're seeing. Uh, walk through some of the clinical updates and. Uh, I'm going to leave the breaking news about with vaccinations that we all know now um, to last because I'm sure that's going to have a lot of discussion. So in just looking at where we're at um, across the United States, you know, over the past 28 days, we've um, um, seen, you know, a sharp increase in, in cases, mostly due to Delta um, variant. And if you're looking at this map, it is definitely, um, Florida is still red hot. There have been no real changes there. Uh, our positivity um, rate for this week is 19.3%. And we're not getting the, the daily numbers that we used to, but um, any way you cut it, um, things are pretty uh, um, significant here. And in the county where um, I sit is um, very, overwhelmingly positive with the majority of our hospitals being freed, uh, filled. And I think um, yesterday we had two ICU beds available. So um, things are pretty rough right now. When we look at the updates for hospitalizations, this is from the Florida um, Hospital Association. We are seeing, uh, someone had mentioned that we may peak next week, but it doesn't look like that is about to happen. We're still seeing a very sharp um, incline in the rates of hospitalizations. And for um, the majority of our hospitalizations are with those who are unvaccinated. Um, we still, we had um, one of our larger county hospitals had 100% unvaccinated um, people in the hospital. So it is something that we're, we're very much aware of. The numbers are still um, trending upwards. Um, the number of new cases uh, are trending upwards and we're seeing more vaccinations, which is a good thing too. And we'll talk about that in a minute. When we look at 
the way the country is going as a whole. You know, I was looking through some information with uh, the CDC and the forecast is that we're still going to see new cases um, of COVID and we're, we're still expecting that number to um, go up. I do see some of the latest um, projections, you know, when we when you average everything out there, there are hopefully we're going to see like some blunting and um, plateauing, but it's not clear yet. It, I think it all depends on how we how vaccinations keep going. When we're looking at hospital um, um, emissions, we do see um, more of a trend upward. And then I thought um, I wanted to show the different views of um, the total deaths because what we see here is a little bit more of a blunting of that line, like a, of, of a flattening of that line now that it's up again, but hopefully we'll start to see it plateau to and uh, level off. Unclear right now. Um, unfortunately, we, we are still having some of those challenges where you know, we're still having difficulty getting people vaccinated. And um, I think, you know, what we're gonna, I wanna share a little bit is the, the difficulties we've been having in getting people um, treatment as well. So moving along, when we're looking at the clinical updates, we're gonna hit on some of the information around breakthrough infections, variants, and monoclonal antibodies. And Shane, if you could, I'm not um, able to see the chat right now. So please, um, if you could monitor the chat. Um, I want to highlight first reaffections because I feel like we don't pay enough attention to reaffection. And what we're seeing in a, a lot of the cases, um, some of the people who are now coming back into our hospitals and who are um, getting really sick do have actual reaffection. This um, was from one of the morbidity and mortality weekly reports from a few weeks ago. It has looked at the reduced risk of reinfection after vaccination, which is um, a very um, good news. You know, when you're looking at comparing it to those who are partially vaccinated or not vaccinated, we did have some um, indication that the re um, risk of reinfection was very low for that vaccinated population. And what we've been able to um, understand uh, at, at the point that we were maybe even a few weeks ago um, is that when you look at a fully vaccinated person of much um, advanced age, their mortality risk is comparable to an unvaccinated person at um, age 50. This comes from public health data from England. I thought it was very interesting just to, for us to think about where we've been at and, and how we've been looking at this. Because um, you know we are seeing many more breakthrough infections, and this is a correspondence that was recently in the New England Journal of Medicine. They looked at 417 health workers who had been vaccinated um, with um, the Pfizer vaccine, and of them, um, I think there were like four people who became um, who had breakthrough infections, and they followed them through. They were symptomatic, and they they followed them through. So we know we knew it was happening, and now what we're seeing is that there is a a, a true and um, 
a very real concern over the effectiveness of COVID-19 vaccines, which stimulated a lot of the news um, that we're going to discuss in a minute. So this um, came out last week, um, sort of in correlation with a very, a couple of very good sessions that the CDC did um, um, in the last few days around vaccine effectiveness. And um, this really looked at the Delta variant and it compared Pfizer and AstraZeneca. And um, what they found is that um, while, you know, when looking at the alpha um, variant, um, there is um, a diminished um, effectiveness against the Delta variant, which, like I said, is, is now old news. But why this is still important is because of where we're at. So what we're seeing in this country is that the majority of the spread, I believe on August 5th, it was 83.1% of, um, of the COVID infections was the Delta variant. 9.1% of those um, infections were AY3, which is represented down here, 0.3, which is uh, a Delta plus variant. So there are um, three um, um, of those Delta plus variants that we're monitoring as variants of concern. And we did see a higher percentage of, um, of um, infections with the AY.3 um, Delta plus variant. So the majority of our infections that we're seeing today um, throughout the country is um, Delta variant. And then we're seeing many more of the Delta plus variant. So I think we've um, probably spent a lot of time talking about why we need to get vaccinated, why it's important, how we need to stop the mutations. Um, one thing that I wanted to share is something that I thought was a, a, a really interesting graphic. And it looked at the studies um, from England, Scotland, Israel, and Canada, and it compared the, the different responsiveness of um, the effectiveness of the different vaccines. So A represents alpha and D represents delta. What we can see as a trend is that all of these vaccinations um, that were looked at, um, which was everything except for Johnson & Johnson and some of the vaccines that are out only in China and in um, Russia. So the ones that we are most familiar with, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, and Moderna were, were studied. And um, we saw diminished effectiveness uh, um, across all of these vaccines for the between the alpha and delta variants, which is how we are here where we're at now. Before we um, go into more about the vaccine, the vaccines, I want to talk about two different two other things. So I wanted to share with you the morbidity and mortality weekly report that came out yesterday. Um, it really did look at new COVID cases and hospitalizations among adults by vaccination status. And um, we're going to put this up in our COVID library. It, it looks at that um, 18 year um, 18 to, I believe, um, 50, 50 to 64, 65 in older population as a, a whole. Um, what I did was highlight really age 65 years and older. And here, um, this is looking at new COVID cases among fully vaccinated and unvaccinated adults, um, the vaccine coverage and estimated vaccine effectiveness. So when we're looking that solid line that's down at the um, down below, that is um, the the those who are fully vaccinated, and then um, this little dash line is all um, 
people. And what we see is, I wanna make sure I'm giving everything correctly. What we see is that um, for those who are fully vaccinated, we do see a lower um, percentage of hospitalizations for um, that group. And this is represented on the next slide. But when we're looking at new hospitalizations, we do see those fully vaccinated are at a much lower rate versus those who are not, um, who are unvaccinated. And I think that is something that we've been trying to share a lot with people because um, if, if, you're, you may be getting these questions in your facilities and in your practices um, from your family and friends and the news about what, what, what does this all mean? Um, the fact that we're seeing so many breakthrough cases and what, what are we really seeing with, when it comes to effectiveness? You know, we are seeing those breakthrough cases. You have to share that you may get symptoms. There are treatments, um, which we're going to go into right now, but we have to make sure that we're being very honest because we still want those individuals who were hesitant for so many months to be vaccinated. And I think that the best way to talk to people is to really be honest with them about what they're what to expect. So um, with that, I want to talk about monoclonal antibody utilization. And um, if you were, I don't know if you're tapping into some of the other sessions that AMDA has available on their website, but there was a really amazing session last week for um, the Washington um, um, Medical Directors Association. And they had um, a few infectious disease doctors on there and they spoke a lot about monoclonal antibodies. In the, on the um, COCA call that CDC has um, on, August 12th, they also spoke about monoclonal antibodies. And I wanted to just share some of this information because we are still seeing that there has been an underutilization of monoclonal antibodies. Um, the state um, in, in Florida and um, as in many other states, there are now a lot of emergency centers where people can go just to get this infusion. And um, we, um, we are seeing that it's a little bit easier, but for some areas, we do know that this is still a problem. I believe, um, speaking to other members on our board, on the FAMDA board, uh, there was some concern because sometimes it's not being ordered um, by the, the, the clinicians. And then other times when it is ordered, there are still um, issues with staffing and so they cannot give it in the facility. Um, whenever we see that, we really have to be very proactive to make sure we're still getting them into um, infusion centers because we don't want um, to deny a treatment that, you know, I, I could attest to is seeing with my own family and the people who I care for. Um, this treatment does definitely work, um, whether the person is vaccinated or, un or unvaccinated. So I want to start first with um, something that was shared last week. You know, just to, to make sure that we're all on the same page, we could use um, Regen Cove um, for both treatment if there is an active COVID-19 infection, um, especially um, um, for those people who may have a higher risk for severe COVID-19 um, and are displaying mild to moderate symptoms, they should definitely under in any case, in any situation, be offered the monoclonal antibodies. Regen um, Cove is approved to um, to be utilized uh, it, with the Delta variant. 
you could also give this as post-exposure prophylaxis. And that becomes very important when we're thinking about our nursing home residents who may have been exposed to someone. And we wanna make sure we are thinking proactively in, in prescribing this, you know, so that we don't see um, that person become ill or sick with uh, COVID. You know, there is, like I said, there, there is now that indication under the EUA and you can write for it and you can just go ahead and give them, it's like a 50 minute effusion. <laughs> and um, we're now able to, um, I was talking to um, Shan Starkey, who's on the line. We are able to give this uh, either IV or sub-Q. The sub-Q um, shots, and um, there are some states who are doing drive-throughs, so that's what we were talking about, where they're giving um, four sub-Q shots of the monoclonal antibodies um, to, to people while they're in their car. I just think it's, it's interesting. And I, I want everyone who is listening to realize that this is a very easy, um, easily delivered um, medication. Um, I, I've not had anyone complain about the delivery um, who've had this, and we really do need to be using this more often. You could connect with your long-term care pharmacy um, if there's an issue. If you cannot, because of staffing issues in your buildings, utilize this, please be proactive and connect with the effusion centers around you. Um, go to the Department of um, the Florida Department of Health website and look at all those emergency centers as well. Um, what we're seeing when we're using um, this, you know, one of the studies that um, I think it was very impactful is that you definitely see a decrease in a hospitalization or all-cause death when we use the Regen Cove. Um, the other um, medication that's commercially available, and I'm going to butcher the name, I believe it's Strovab, <laughs> Strovib, and forgive me if I butchered that name, that also showed an 85% reduction in, um, in hospitalizations or death. Uh, but Regen Cove is available to our residents and to any patients that you're treating and to yourself, your family, um, at no additional um, charge right now because the, it is under EUA and the government is really supporting it. When we look at the, the monoclonal antibodies versus the variants, so we know that alpha was susceptible to all authorized antibodies. The beta and the gamma had um, redu reduced um, susceptibility to BAM. Um, and now when we're looking at um, what we're using, what's, what we have available, Regencove is um, expected to retain activity against the beta, the gamma variants. Um, but most importantly, I guess what we're seeing really in our uh, in our state and across the country, the Delta variant, we're still expecting to see um, that it has activity um, it maintains its activity against that variant, which is vitally important. So, you know, I may be on a high horse right now, but please put this as um, a priority in, in what you're doing. Uh, make sure that if you're if you don't know how to deliver this in your building, talk to your your staff, your um, the the administrator and the the DON, and make a plan for where you're going to send your residents um, if you need to do this, either for the post exposure prophylaxis or if they are in need of a treatment. So now we're going to talk about vaccinations, and I know this is why everyone is here. 
<laughs> so I want to first start not with the headliner from yesterday, but with um, the news that came out about immunocompromised individuals last week. Um, this was really coming from a lot of that data that um, I shared in that one graphic earlier, earlier from um, Israel and England, where we were seeing uh, that immunocompromised individuals needed did not make a strong enough response to um, their um, to to COVID following the first and second um, administration of an mRNA um, vaccination, and so. The recommendation is for um, immunocompromised individuals uh, to receive a third shot. So the the definition and the, the conversation that occurred last week was who is in this um, population. And I think that um, for the past few weeks in discussing it with the CDC and some things that we discussed internally and in, in my workspace, you know, we really do think that our um, um, nursing facility residents are part of that immunocompromised um, population, those who are long-term care. We know that they may have frailty, they may have other conditions that will probably put them in that severe primary immunodeficiency um, category. So I um, want to consider for anyone who has not been vaccinated, you know, the sequence of doing that vaccination is what they're recommending is that after you get your um, second dose, um, your third dose should be administered at least 28 days after completion of that primary mRNA um, series. And um, if there was a, a situation that we saw happen many times, I believe early in the vaccine rollout, where someone may have gotten Pfizer one week um, and then three weeks later either received a Moderna or vice versa. Um, even if in those situations, um, it is that additional dose, if, if it's different from what was the primary um, sequence, it is allowed. So that was the news that came out last week about immunocompromise. And now a word from our sponsor, U.S. Post-Acute Care. Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever, post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients. At US Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost, and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At US Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. What then came out um, this week was the discussion over the COVID booster shots um, that's now going to roll out um, next month um, in the week of September 20th. So in looking at all of those studies, and um, I think Dr. Fauci said it very well, when they, they reviewed all of that data, they did see that the effectiveness of, um, of the mRNA vaccines 
against the Delta variant were very concerning because it was so much um, less than anticipated and that that um, immunity may wane. And the recommendation now is for a um, booster shot, which um, I'm sure all of us uh, on, on the call are very excited about. Um, starting in September. And I say all of us because most of the healthcare workers were really vaccinated back in, oh, December and January. I know my second shot was on January 20th. So that's really in line with um, when the boosters are going to roll out. So the joint statement was um, released and, um, um, you know, CMS and, and the um, Health and Human Services released this after meeting and, and coming to a consensus. And then more breaking news happened where um, um, the Biden-Harris administration um, made, mandated for all of our SNF staff to be vaccinated. So all of the staff in the nursing homes will need to be vaccinated. If not, um, there will be an impact on um, federal funds. And CMS on their website um, states that they are going to issue regulations requiring nursing homes to implement this requirement um, so that all staff will be vaccinated against COVID. And this was pretty much um, a discussion on a very good webinar that Ian and I were speaking of earlier that occurred last night on AMDA, where we were able to hear from um, Lori Porter, who is the, the president of NACA, the CNA or, organization, um, and just have a very open conversation with her and um, Leslie Eber, who's very familiar with um, our journal club. And they just talked about the challenges that they were seeing and some of the, the issues and concerns and the challenges that we may see even with the mandate. Um, we know that if Florida, um, only um, this is from information updated on in July that we have 45.1% of our um, healthcare staff, uh, nursing home staff vaccinated. So we still have a, a, a very big um, number of people who need to be vaccinated. And this is, does it take in consideration uh, the kitchen staff and the, those who may be in the business office and other people in the building. Um, so with that, I wanted to just share once again that um, FAMDA does have a SNF vaccination confidence initiative. We have already compiled several on-demand videos um, for your, your, your staff to be educated about why they should take the, um, the vaccinations. Um, we have sessions answering questions about fertility and, and infectious, um, the, the infection risk of bringing this home to your family. Um, we have videos um, speaking both to our, our staff who may speak more Creole or Spanish. And we've been doing a lot of work trying to get out in front of people, anyone who would have us. Um, I know one of our, um, a, a, one of our really 
enthusiastic members. Carmel um, Casimir has been presenting across South Florida at different ALFs and independent facility, independent living facilities about the importance of, um, of um, vaccine and being vaccinated. And I wanted to share with you before we open it up for discussion, just something that um, Dr. Hawk was able to put together for us. Why am I still alive? Well, you might wonder, is it because of the mask or could it be something else? Well, for one thing, I'm very lucky to be alive. I was a medic in Vietnam and I got through that alive. I almost fell asleep driving cross country one night, but I didn't fall asleep and I'm lucky to be alive. But there are many other reasons that I'm alive as well. One are medical advances and technology. Sterile technique in the operating room, antibiotics. Now there are also our behaviors. I don't smoke or use drugs, alcohol in moderation. I exercise and I try to watch my diet. So there are medical advances, behaviors, and luck that keep me alive. Workplace safety. You know, nowadays, safety is everyone's concern and we learn about it all the time. So workplace safety is very important for staying healthy and staying alive. If you're tired of these masks the way I am, well, now is the time that we have a great opportunity to get rid of our silly you know there's another reason that i'm alive and that is for all of the medical advances and behaviors for all of the safety issues in the workplace and the, on the highway the one thing that the cdc attributes to keeping us alive are vaccinations vaccinations make a huge difference when was the last time you knew anybody who had smallpox well, probably none of us did. The last smallpox in the world was in 1977. Vaccinations stopped in the early 70s. I was vaccinated against smallpox when I was just a little child. It left a mark on my arm. And even then I can remember how people didn't want to be vaccinated for smallpox. It was deadly. It was just deadly. But when smallpox vaccination started, there was a public outrage. What about the side effects? You know, it was a serum that actually came from cows. So maybe our babies would look like calves and not little boys and girls. It all turned out that the side effects, although they existed, were minimal. They were just tiny. And smallpox was eradicated around the world. How about diphtheria? You know, we used to call that part of the school shots that we had to have to go to grade school. The polio vaccination, polio is still with us, but it's diminished greatly. So of all the reasons why I'm still alive, vaccinations are the number one reason. And we should talk about side effects and benefits. You know, 
the benefit of a vaccination, even with these wild variants, and we'll continue to hear about more of those, even with those variants, the vaccination helps to reduce illness and all of the people who have been admitted to the hospital who die, they haven't been vaccinated. So the vaccine gets the primary and the variant models of this COVID disease. At FAMDA, the Florida Medical Directors Association, we're here to help you. And if we can, through webinars or personal attention, phone calls for our video conferencing, if we can help you or your staff understand the facts about COVID-19 vaccine, about the benefits, the side effects, and what's good for you, because we want you and your staff to stay alive, stay well, understand the benefits, understand the side effects, and make quality choices. I'm Dr. Leonard Hawk with the Florida Medical Directors Association, and we're here to support you and your team. All right, and with that, I'm gonna open it up for discussion. All right, so we do have something from Monica Peak who has put into the chat a link for finding a local effusia center. Yes, I just wanted to um, share that with everybody. You can um, use the left nav um, on that site and find uh, whatever um, infusion center is closest to your uh, nursing home. Um, I also wanted to ask, and Maria looks like she already <laughs> asked the question, why is preferred uh, route the IV versus the subcutaneous? Um, since the subcutaneous is so much more convenient. Yeah. Thank you. I yeah, so um, that's a good question. I think that the way the FDA put it in the, the um, language that they use, that IV effusion is preferred, but sub-Q can be, um, is an alternate route. I think um, it really comes down to whatever, whichever is the easiest to access. I, um, I, I and I know we have um, um, Shan Starkey on, I, I think that Either way is good. You just have to remind individuals if they're getting sub-Q that they're going to get four um, injections. Um, I believe, um, Shani, you were mentioning in the abdomen. I, I think that what we're seeing is that it works. Um, people are not having reactions to, um, to, to the sub-Q administration. So if that's what you have available, then I would um, go ahead and utilize it. IV was the first one made, so we didn't get to have sub-Q when we initially launched. You can, um, they're finding that, it is, that most of them feel it's quicker, and, uh, but that patient still has to be observed for an hour post, no matter IV or sub-Q, they need to be monitored for an hour for any hypersensitivity. Well, if I could jump in for a minute. So thank you, Dr. Sanders. We've had another great session. Um, also want to thank Dr. Hawk. I mean, that video, every time I see it, it's just so impactful. So please, um, we can provide a link to that if you want to share that with anybody um, in uh, the nursing homes that you're affiliated with. 
Uh, also, we're in the process of planning within the next week to 10 days, uh, train the trainer uh, Zoom meeting. We're trying to engage medical directors across the state uh, and give them some tools and some talking points on how they can go back to their facilities and do everything that they can to have the conversations uh, with the CNAs and, and uh, you know, the nursing staff, maintenance, housekeeping, uh, whomever, uh, because they're certainly concerned with the mandate for vaccination of staff. Uh, and we wanna do what we can, that is FMBA, to uh, help reduce the loss of staff who might not otherwise want to get the vaccination and may decide that they want to uh, seek other kind of employment. We don't wanna lose anybody. Uh, there are enough challenges right now with staffing uh, and maintaining uh, folks in the facility uh, to create another issue. Uh, we wanna be there to support that. And look, the, the mandate is what it is. I think it's something that was needed uh, it has to come from somewhere. So I, I think the fact that it's here, uh, we're just going to have to be as proactive as possible. All of us uh, who are uh, working in nursing homes to uh, ensure that the right information is getting to the right people, even if it's one-on-one, -on -one, whatever it takes. But we think that the medical directors in the facilities really are those, those trusted people that I think that the CNAs and others would have uh, would would feel like the information they're getting is trustworthy. Uh, they know that the medical directors who are the attendings for for many of the patients in in a lot of uh, nursing homes really do care uh, for their patients. They care for the residents there. Uh, in addition to the staff, and certainly COVID is a challenge. So, and with that, Dr. Sanisapeta, um, I'll turn that back over to you. No, I think that's um, very. Um, um good information and good and I'm, I'm glad you shared that i always think of um you know there are people who work in the nursing homes but that's not like the whole complete story of them I'm, i've known people who've been the pastors of churches who were the cna in the uh, in the facility that was just their their job but um there are these amazing um leaders of of congregations and i think that we need to when speaking to um, our CNAs and anyone else in our facilities, just take a moment, listen to them, really um, hear where they're coming from and, and answer their questions. Um, you know, sometimes we're so fast to talk that we don't listen enough and listening and being grateful really helps to have these conversations. Getting to a question I think um, that was asked about, um, is someone immunosuppressed enough, immunocompromised enough if they're on methotrexate for rheumatoid arthritis or psoriasis? I would say yes. Um, I mean, I think that the, the language is so broad that you really um, have a, a way to define what you what is the primary um, immunodeficiency or the immunodeficiency secondary to a medication. So I would definitely, um, put them in the criteria for getting a third vaccination um, because they're immunocompromised. And then um, to the question about the sub-Q through the drive-through, as far as I understand, and I'm still trying to speak to somebody who is in a, who's in the state where this is happening, they just have them park and they monitor them for side effects. 
after they receive their um, treatment, which is, you know, I don't know, it, it's, 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 I think it's funny and kind of uh, like brilliant at the same time, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, we're doing um, vaccinations through drive-throughs. If it, if it helps some one other person not um, go to the hospital or not pass away, I, I'm all for it. Any other questions? Well, like Ian said, we have we have videos available if you want it for your facilities, if you want it for your staff. Um, we have um, education, um, like a lot of education that we can we can deliver. We even have our um, our some of our core education uh, through our um, one of the many initiatives I'm now blanking on what we call it, Ian, but we have um, more education for nurses. Um, someone asked about the prophylactic use of monoclonal antibodies. Um, yes, so if you have been exposed to um, a person with COVID, you can prescribe, if your, your resident has been exposed, you can prescribe them to get um, monoclonal antibodies uh, if, if you're delivering into the facility, or if not, you can send them to um, an effusion center, but yes, it is approved. So if I could just add one more thing, uh, anybody who's wondering, well, what does it cost to, to you know, get this training material or look at the videos or um, have us do a webinar uh, at your facility or with your clinicians, there is no charge. And in part, and thanks to uh, United Health Foundation for a grant that they provided us with, but even if we didn't have that grant, we wouldn't charge for this. We believe that everybody should have as much information uh, as possible because it, it, it's, it's really key to, uh, to fighting all of this. So thank you. And I'm sort of the face of Regeneron, but I have the whole complete state right now. So um, I'm here to help you. I have patients calling me seven days a week to find out where they can go not nursing home patients but regular patients and um and you know i know they're saying that they want everybody vaccinated and we and even when i talk to sites about this i say this does not take the place of a vaccination and we are still promoting vaccinations as well but if a patient has covid and they're in their first 10 days of symptoms this is like a godsend and um, I mean, I've gone through it now with family members and usually by their second or third day after their infusion or their injections, they're feeling back to normal. They still have to continue to rest. They still have to continue to quarantine because they are still shedding virus. So even though you feel great, you have to make sure that you still continue to rest. But um, I'm here for you in any way I can help you, and um, I'm glad to help you. You can feel free to call me in the evening, and you can feel free to call me on the weekends. And I think um, her information is in the chat. If you guys have questions, you can always email us directly um, um, through the, the, you know, contact um Shane or Ian or myself, and we will definitely get um, your your questions asked. I know that there's someone who said, "Do you have a list of the facilities at Dade County? Um, are you meaning the 
places where they could get monoclonal antibody effusions or are you speaking to something different? Yes, okay. Um, I think that we have a, uh, an earlier um, site was put in. If you send us an email though, we could try to get you more information about where you could get, um, where you could get the monoclonal effusions, antibody effusion in Dade County. And also if they send me a text message just with your information on it so I can send it back to you, I will also provide you with that information. Excellent. And a quick and easy email for FMDA is info at fmda.org. All right, guys. Well, more to come in the upcoming weeks. Um, there's going to still be a lot of things to talk about. Like I said, I don't think Florida is near as peak yet. I was hoping, but um, some of the data worries me. So we will stay in close contact with everyone. Thank you. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. References for this podcast and links to previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club.